You are listening to sermon audio from Grace Community Church of Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net. You'll notice that I'm wearing blue this morning because I'm in mourning. I thought it was a little over the top to wear black, so I thought I'd wear blue because at one point, really, my Ducks missed the national championship game by one point. I'd pay good money right now for one point, but it still wouldn't help things, right? I've been accused of being a North Carolina fan because their color is blue. No, I'm in mourning. I just didn't want to, you know, be over the top with that. But I'm in pain this morning because my team lost. I'll get over it. Maybe. In time. Years. This morning, we look at a very, very familiar story. How many of you have heard the story of Daniel in the lion's den? I want to see a show of hands. Yeah, like 90% of you, so I better get this right because you all know this story, right? But there is a special kind of pain that is really surfaced in this story this morning. And it's not about the pain of your favorite sports team losing their game. It's, it's a far more real, far more significant dilemma. And it is the dilemma, it is the difficulty, it is the pain of being attacked, ridiculed, criticized, devalued, slandered for your faith. That ever happened to you? Some of you are right there right now. As a pastor, I don't really have to endure this the way many of you do in the the workplaces that you serve. But probably my first brush with this was back to a story that I told you just a couple weeks ago. It was back in college when I had been hired to be a hall director. And for those of you who remember that story, I was a really young hall director, the youngest on our staff at the time at the college where I attended. And um, I was young and I had some pride that I was up against and that pride and especially my people pleasing was exposed during a very difficult year as my hall director. I went in thinking that I was gonna turn the toughest residence hall on the campus around and it was a disaster, it blew up in my face. But if that wasn't difficult enough, What was even more painful than working at something, giving myself to something, throwing myself completely into it and not really seeing results. On top of that, what was even more difficult was the criticism that came my way because I was a Jesus follower. Because among some of my peers, as my residence hall was crumbling, despite my best efforts and despite doing my very best to, to, to make a difference and to hold it together, one of the criticisms that eventually came my way from some critics was, well, it's because he spends too much time in church. It's because he spends too much time in the on-campus Christian club that he was a part of. And I was. I was part of the leadership of the Christian club on our campus. And it wasn't really a club. I really don't like that term, but our Christian group. And it was a very vital outreach and God was doing stuff and it was very exciting. We, we carved an hour a week for prayer where we did nothing but pray. And in the life of a college student, when you're busy and going to classes and trying to manage everything, an hour is incredibly precious time and it was difficult, and there were some weeks I just really didn't want to go, to be honest with you, but for an hour every week we would pray and saw God do amazing things as a result. But against this backdrop, 
I was being criticized for talking about Jesus too much, praying too much, not being around my residence hall more because I would go to church, because I was serious about loving Jesus and living for him, and it, and it really was not fair. I worked hard at my job. The assistant dean that I reported to thought I was doing a great job. In fact, he often used me as an example of how to administrate a hall and how to organize a hall and how to handle difficult issues. The criticism wasn't coming from him, it was coming from those around me. It was really coming from some of my peers. And some of you have been there. And some of you are there now. You have been criticized for your love for Christ. You have been criticized or are being criticized for how you serve Jesus. And as familiar as this story is for us this morning, Daniel in the lion's den, one of the things that the Lord has spoken to me about in my study of this passage in preparation for our time this morning is that it wasn't just Daniel's faith that's on display that delivered him from the lion's den. This isn't just about the faith that delivers from the lion's den. Even more so, this is about the faith that gets you into the lion's den in the first place. Ironically, Daniel's faith did deliver him from the lion's den, but it is that faith that put him there in the first place. So what does this teach us about faith? I'm glad you asked, because that's what this passage is about, and that's what we're gonna look at this morning. So if you have a Bible, pull it out, turn on your phone, turn on your tablet. If you're old school like me and you actually have the written word, then take that out. But we're gonna walk through this together. And this is a great story, and again, I know it's familiar to many of you, but wow, is this practical and timely for us as we think about what it means to live for Jesus and to follow him and what faith is all about. So here we go. Chapter six, there has been a change in regimes. If you were with us last week, Josh took us through Daniel chapter five where Daniel comes in and it once again is sought for his counsel and his wisdom. God's hand appears, there's writing on the wall and there's a message for this proud king who would not repent, who would not turn from his pride and that very night, because he doesn't, he loses the kingdom. The Medes and Persians had, invade, had invaded Babylon that very day and that night they broke through the gates and that night there was a change in leadership and this is where we pick up now with chapter six. It pleased Darius, the new king, to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. He's about to get another promotion. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of governmental affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charging this man Daniel unless it has something to do with the law of his God. His faith is clearly on display here and they shrewdly realize, they wisely realize they're not gonna entrap him by disparaging his character because of his faith. So now they're gonna hang him with it. So these administrators and satraps went as a group to the king and said, may King Darius live forever. 
The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days except you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, a couple things here. Did everybody agree with this? No. Did you notice Daniel wasn't consulted? So actually, all of the king's leadership did not agree with this, and it says that whoever violates this is going to be thrown into the lion's den. Now, just real quickly, in the original language, this word can be translated den or pit. And there's been some question as how this story continues to unfold, how some of this works out if it's a den. Well, probably more than likely, this was a, a pit with a, with a lid on it a door over it, and then you were thrown or lowered down, probably thrown into the lion's pit or the lion's den. But you wanna lock that away because of how this story unfolds, okay? So, now your majesty, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians which cannot be repealed. So, King Darius put the decree in writing. And there's a part of me as you begin to see how this story unfolds, especially for those of you who are familiar with it, could the king not see this coming? How in the world did he fall for this? Could it be that this king, like the other kings we've seen in Daniel, was blinded once again by pride? There was just a regime change. He just came to power. And now he is at the end of a very short leash that everybody else is attached to, his authority. And so now he's gonna make a name for himself. He's gonna show who's in charge. This had to have appealed to his ego. And that's probably what blinded him. We won't ever really know for sure, but he's really missing what's about to happen. Now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to God just as he had done before. Now, the way this is written, it suggests that this was a normal practice for Daniel. And for those of you who know your Old Testament, this really, this practice refers to something that's talked about in 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 41 through 44, where it says there in context, foreigners... In other lands, if they will pray towards Jerusalem, then God will hear their prayers. And so many of the Jews, evidently, like Daniel, took this to heart and being foreigners in a foreign land would consistently, here, three times a day, pray towards Jerusalem because that was a way of showing their devotion to Yahweh and to the Lord. There are many Jews who still practice this to this day. When we were in Israel a year ago and we were on our way there, our itinerary was in Istanbul, Turkey. Turkey. This is in, the, in one of the wings of the airport there. The, this is a group of Hasidic Jews and we got their permission to take their picture. We didn't sneak up on them. But they're praying towards the direction of Jerusalem right here in the middle of the concourse. This is still practiced by many Jews today when they're in another country. They will pray towards Jerusalem two, three times a day. And that's what was going on here. But the emphasis here isn't on what Daniel necessarily was doing. It was on what he wouldn't do. Daniel would not compromise on who he worshipped or how he worshipped. 
So let's see how the story unfolds. So Daniel goes back to his room and he prays. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any god or human being except to you, your majesty, would be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, the decree stands in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. Here it comes. Then they said to the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, your majesty, or to the decree you put in writing. Is that true? Kinda. Every good lie, an effective lie, rather, has truth in it. This is a half-truth. Does Daniel pay no attention to the king? Of course he pays attention. The king was just about to promote him to the second highest role in the kingdom. So, no, that's not true, but he is disobeying the decree. He's not willing to compromise on that. He still prays three times a day. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. And he was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. Now this fascinates me. So the king now has painted himself unknowingly into a corner. So how is he gonna get out of this? And more importantly, how is he gonna save Daniel's life? And we're not told what he did to save Daniel. But it makes me wonder. So what, do you, what was going through his mind? Maybe if I overfeed the lions. Maybe if I make them really full you know, so they're not hungry. Or maybe if I accidentally left the door open and they wandered off, maybe that would work. You know, I don't know. But he's trying to the best of his effort to save Daniel. So the men went as a group to King Darius and just to make sure he's on board with them, remember, your majesty, that according to the law of the Medes and Persians, no decree or edict that the king issues can be changed. So the king gave the order and they brought Daniel and they threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, may your God whom you serve continually rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles so that, the de- so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. And then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him and he could not sleep. You ever been there? You ever gone to sleep worried about some, or tried to go to sleep worried about something? Gone to bed at night and had something gnawing at you? As a parent of young adults, it's waiting for that garage door to go up knowing that your child has got home safely that night. Or maybe it's going to bed not knowing the results of a lab test that got sent off that you really need to know about. Or maybe it's something you have to face the next day, a discussion you don't wanna have, a relationship that you're gonna have to steer into, something waiting for you at work. We've all been there. And that's where this king was. So upset, didn't eat, didn't wanna watch TV, no Netflix that night. can't sleep he is genuinely worried about his friend 
At the first light of dawn, the king got up and he hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to rescue you from the lions? Daniel answered, may the king live forever. Now, if I was the guy responsible for throwing you in the lion's den and I go to check on you at the end of this long night, is that how you would greet me? This again, reveals the character of this amazingly godly saint, this man. My God sent his angel, Daniel replies, and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight. Nor have I done anything wrong before you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. At the king's command, the men who had falsely accused Daniel were brought in and thrown into the lion's den along with their wives and children. And before they reached the floor of the den, the lions overpowered them and crushed all of their bones. Boy, is that ever a graphic picture of judgment, right? And yes, that, that is harsh. And, and that's really difficult in many ways for us to understand. But in this culture and in many Near Eastern cultures and even cultures of today, the whole family is held responsible for sometimes the choices of a few. And that's what happens here. Judgment is, is served and justice really is served. Boy, there's a lot about faith here. But one of the things we see from this man's life is faithfulness. In fact, in every language of the Bible, Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic, the word for faith can actually be translated into faithfulness. Faithfulness is the expression, is the application of, of faith. One person has defined faithfulness as a long obedience in the same direction. And we see that here in this story. Oftentimes, if you're like me and you've seen depictions of Daniel being thrown in the lion's den, he's usually this middle-aged guy, maybe sometimes even young-looking guy. Daniel was 83 years old when this happened. 83 years old. He had lived through three different kings, and two complete regime changes, and he was still faithful to his God. His faith hadn't deteriorated over time. It had, it had deepened. In fact, we're told that he was exceptional in how he performed his job at age 83, that his integrity was without question. He was trustworthy. There was no corruption in him. In fact, he was so good at what he did he was so capable at what he did. He served so well and worked so hard and so diligently. They couldn't criticize him. They couldn't attack him. They couldn't devalue him. They couldn't put him in a difficult spot because they had nothing against him. He was really good at what he did. And one of the things that we have to remember about Old Testament narrative, Old Testament stories, is that when themes are repeated... That is done very purposefully for us to get it. 
And as we've read this chapter, many of you have wisely recognized and realized, hey, this sounds kind of familiar, and that's purposeful. The parallel to this chapter is chapter three. Do you remember the fiery furnace? Daniel's three friends, them being thrown in the furnace because of their faith, they also were exceptional at what they did. They were described in very similar ways to the way Daniel is being described. And this matters for us. And it matters greatly. Because what we've been looking at is one of the timely, significant things about this book. Why it's so important for us to be hearing this message now is because one of the central themes, one of the central ways that we apply Sunday in and Sunday out, what we're hearing out of this book is that we live distinctly for Christ. We are a faithful present in a culture around us that does not know God. As opposed to the schools of thought where, well, we just separate ourselves from the culture. Don't engage the culture. Separate yourself from it. Have nothing to do with it. That's not what's being modeled here. These men served in the very pagan governments that were in power at the time. That's not what's being modeled here. The other school of thought is, well, then let's just assimilate. Let's just become like the culture. And where there's pressure points or where there's places where, you know, we might experience some difficulty, we just, as much as possible, we go along with what's going on around us. Well, no, there's not that either. They were distinct in this culture around them. Daniel, every day, prayed, not to gods, like everybody else, but to the one true God, and he was not willing to compromise on that. What we see modeled by Daniel, by the other faithful Jews of his time, is they were distinctly different. They were irresistible influences in the lives of those around them, they were a faithful presence. That is what we are called to be in this culture. But if we are, if we live that way, you will come to a point where you will be attacked, criticized, devalued, unfairly for that stance. There will come a time when you will be challenged by criticism and compromise. If you live distinctly, it's not a question of if, it's a question of when. Daniel lived distinctly by doing his job really well. We talked about this at preaching team. How do you live distinctly in our culture today? In the workplace. How can you be a distinct presence? How can you be trustworthy? How can you live with integrity? How can you be an example that points people to Christ? Well, can you show up to work on time? Or even a little early? Can you put in a full day's work and not take shortcuts? Can you work hard? Can you focus on being the very best that you can be at whatever you do? Can you not leave work early? But actually put in a full day's work, can you do what's asked of you? Can you be respectful? In a culture that is entitled, in a culture that increasingly believes they are owed, that they should start out 
at the top of the food chain instead of working their way up to greater responsibility and reward? You want to be a distinctive presence? Do those things. Show up. Work hard. Do it well. Go home. But don't go home early. Don't leave the job undone. Those are always, but it's not just in the workplace. You can apply this to any station of life. As a parent, love your family well. Change that diaper faithfully. Serve your family. When your kids want to talk, drop what you're doing and be in the moment. That, that's all the same principle applied. If you are a caregiver for someone, love them well, serve them well. Be attentive to their needs. If you're retired, this isn't the central message of this book, but it's interesting that here's an 83-year-old guy who is still hard at it. Retirement isn't necessarily an excuse to do nothing. It is a different season of life where you can invest even more of yourself in God's work, in God's kingdom. And now you're not encumbered by a paycheck. Isn't that more a biblical idea of retirement? Daniel wasn't retired and he wasn't out playing golf every day, maybe occasionally on his days off, but you get it, right? We're called to live distinctively for Christ and there's some very practical ways that we can do it. But unfortunately, if we do that, it's gonna cost us. Daniel's faith got him out of the lion's den, but it also put him in it. It's what landed him there. Now, I'll never forget a defining moment conversation I had with my disciple in college when this criticism was beginning to come my way, and I, I was thinking very seriously about how do I escape this? What is the way around this? What is the way out of this? And I remember him looking me in the eye and saying, Jay, what is it that you're doing wrong? Or let's put it another way. What is it you're doing that God doesn't want you to do? So God doesn't want you talking about him? So God doesn't want you praying? So God doesn't want you discipling? So God doesn't want you serving other people? Which of those four things should you stop doing because it's outside the will of God? Uh, none. Okay, then there's your answer. Do not compromise. For Daniel, that compromise was how and when he prayed. He was not going to compromise who he worshipped or how he worshipped. Where is the line of compromise for you? Where are you tempted to say, this is too hard? This costs too much. Maybe if I didn't do that anymore. Boy, is that a challenging question, right? Where are those times where God serves up the opportunity for you to talk about Christ and you take a pass? Because you don't want to be criticized because you don't want to risk someone's disapproval. Boy, we're, we're all faced with that. And I've had those times where I've, where I've defaulted to saying nothing and realizing it was because I was trying to avoid criticism. 
Because the reality is, it's not a question of if you're gonna find yourself in the lion's den. It's a question of when you will find yourself in the lion's den and how you're going to respond. And once again, we're reminded in the story that faith is what delivers us from the lion's den. It delivers Daniel from the lion's den. But some of you might rightfully say, okay, chapter three, they get thrown in the furnace, God shows up, God delivers them. Chapter six, Daniel gets thrown in the lion's den, he shuts the mouths of the lions and delivers him. Those two stories had a happy ending. The story doesn't always have a happy ending. And that is true. And I'm not sure it is the principal point in this passage and in these chapters. God doesn't always deliver from the lion's den in the way that we think. You'll notice I titled this point, The Lion's Den. And we'll come back to that in just a minute. But do you know what another common denominator is in chapter three and chapter six? It's not just that God delivered these men from their lion's dens, from the furnace. The other reality, and I think in many ways the greater reality and the greater application for us isn't necessarily you're always gonna be delivered from lesser lion's dens. It's that God goes there with you. Do you know what the common denominator is in these two stories, the furnace and the lion's den? God was there. Those men did not go into those lion's dens alone. They did not go into that furnace alone. God went with them. This is the God who goes with us into whatever lion's den we go into especially the ones that are unfair and unjust, especially the lion's dens we find ourselves in because we're doing what's right, because we're living for him, because we're being faithful to him, because we're living distinctly for him. But it can feel awfully lonely there, can it not? And that's why it's so important that this be a safe place that when you come to worship here, you don't feel like you've gotta pretend or put on a happy face or that things are always okay. There are a number of you who are in lion's dens right now or you know that one's coming your way or you're, you've been in one and you're not sure how to get out of it and no one wants to be there and no one wants to stay there. And that's why we have prayer teams and encourage you to come forward for prayer and to share your life with other people here. Do you realize scripture never, ever, ever says that you have to pretend that life is better than it is? Where in the world have we gotten this idea that we come to church and we put on a happy face and we're not allowed to grieve, we're not allowed to hurt, we're not allowed to be in pain, we're not allowed to be in a lion's den? That is not church. And that is not community the way God describes it and what he wants for us as the church. This should be the safest place in the world for you to say, man, I'm in the middle of it and I want out. But I also want to be faithful. Because that's, that's what we're called to be as, as a church family. I think this is the greater message here. And here it is. 
What is the lion's den? I think the lion's den is death. Scripture describes death as the last enemy that we all face. And if God can rescue us from that lion's den, then he can rescue us from every other. I got her permission to share this story with you as I talked with her last night. There is someone who used to um, attend here. She was actually on our staff as our children's ministry assistant. Her name's Annette Durheim, Tom and Annette Durheim. And Annette's husband, Tom, this week got called in to work a graveyard shift, which never really happened. It wasn't his normal shift. So earlier this week, he hopped in his car and went to go work that shift. Whenever that has happened in the past, Annette just hasn't slept well, so she stayed up reading her Bible, waiting for him to to get back from his shift. And long before he was supposed to be back, there was a knock on her door. And it was two Oregon State policemen. Tom never came back. He was killed by a drunk driver on I-205 this week. So here's this woman now who is living the worst possible situation many of us could ever dream of. Here are two police officers sitting in her home telling her that her husband is never going to come back. And what does she do? In her tears, in her heartache, in her grief, she looks them in the eye and she says, I know where Tom is. He's with the Lord. Do you know the Lord? You need to know the Lord. And she proceeds to tell them the gospel. The district attorney calls later that day because this was a drunk driver who killed her husband. They're building a case to to bring him to justice. The district attorney is asking her, do you have support? How are you doing? How are you surviving this? She says, I have three churches and we're one of them who are loving me and standing beside me. But do you know the source of my hope? Do you know Jesus? And she proceeds to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with the Clackamas County District Attorney. And some of you might think, there's no way I could do that. How can someone do that? Annette would have said the same thing and she told me that. I would have said the same thing a week ago. But the Holy Spirit meeting her in that moment has given her a boldness in the heart of her grief, in the heart of this tragedy, to tell as many people about Jesus as she can because she has hope, because she understands and realizes, and she made sure I told you this, that Jesus has delivered Tom and her from the ultimate lion's den. That when he died on the cross and rose again, he defeated death. And so therefore, you can lose your reputation, you can lose your recognition, you can get overlooked for credit, you can get criticized by other people, you can even lose someone you love and still have hope because this God has delivered you from the ultimate lion's den because this God also went into a pit went into a tomb that was sealed and rose to new life 
And as a result, if you believe in him, if you have faith in him, if you entrust and trust him with your life, no lion's den can ever challenge or compromise the hope that no one can ever take away from you the hope that comes from Jesus Christ. So as our worship team comes, as we prepare to take communion and celebrate the very truths and realities we've talked about this morning, Annette got one more commitment out of me and she said, don't you dare not share the gospel when you tell my story tomorrow. So here it is. Jesus Christ came to give us life, to give us hope. And unless you've crossed that defining moment line where you trust and entrust yourself to him, you may be a moral person, but you are not a saved person from your sin and your brokenness. And so this morning, as we prepare to celebrate communion, this is an opportunity for you to commit your life to him, to choose to believe in him, to choose to trust in him by receiving him into your life. So I want to invite you to do that right now with me. I'm gonna lead us in prayer. Ushers, you can come forward and prepare to serve communion. We're gonna distribute these elements and we're gonna ask that you hold on to these till everyone's been served and then we will take them together. But let's, let's pray together. Jesus, I pray for anyone who is here who does not know you or they're just not sure if they've ever made that defining moment decision to receive you into their lives that right now they would say Jesus I receive you I believe in you and I thank you that you will never leave me and that by coming into my life you have now rescued me from the greatest lion's den I will ever face. And now because I have you, I will never be alone. And I have life now and life forever through you. Lord, would you remind us of these truths as we sing these songs, as we hold these elements in our hands that you are the God who has freed us from the ultimate lion's den of death and that no lesser lion's den, no matter how hard it is, can ever take away the hope and the reality that we have in you. Thank you, Jesus. And we pray this in your name. Thank you for listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net.